in chapter 7, Luke 7, verses 1 through 17. At verse 1 in chapter 7. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Bob. Oh, yeah, Jim's got one more thing to say. I think I, I, think I know what you're going to say, but I'll let you say it. <laughs> Maybe you better whisper in my bad ear. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot to tell you that be sure and mark those envelopes it. that it is for sabbatical. Just don't leave it blank. Now, I don't have to seem self-serving, Jim, so thank you. <laughs> Yeah, Mark sabbatical on there, uh, whether it's the envelope or a check. Um, I so appreciate it, Jim. Thank you so much for saying those kind words about us and to us. And I'm so thankful for you. Um, You're giving to Bethany Church and that you would even consider to help us out as we go on sabbatical. We're planning on taking a few trips, actually. We'll fill you in as we get closer and even after. I'm going to give some reports as I get back in sermons. I'll weave it in. But we're going to try to get to Phoenix just to get away to a place with a pool. Uh, Then we're going to also go to BC to visit some of Robin's family and aunt and uncle up there. And then also to maybe Southern California to visit uh, my family and, and some of her sisters. So we're trying to get all over. We're not going to run in the whole time because we need to rest too, right? Um, but those are the things we're going to be uh, trying to do. Um, so just thanks for considering that. Well, today we're talking about faith. Faith or synonyms, trust, belief. Hebrews 11.1 describes faith as 
the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's weighty language around the topic of faith. Assurance, that's weighty. Conviction, hope in things we can't see yet. That's important. I mean, isn't that the kind of peace you want in your life? So get back into this Luke passage and this Luke text and series today. That's the kind of assurance and conviction that though you don't know the future, there's much you can know with certainty that we believe, that we trust, we place our faith in. And if we do that, it changes the way you feel, the way you think, and the way you live. And yet most of us, right, if we look at the reality of our life, our faith waxes and wanes, doesn't it? We have seasons of great assurance. We have seasons of doubt in the Christian life. We don't always feel so certain or live with such strong convictions about the unseen things. But wouldn't you like faith that was awakened to a stronger foundation and even experience of that reality so that you could weather life's storms with strength and courage and obedience? Because faith is always connected to action. We're saved by faith alone, but never faith that is alone. Well, maybe you're here today and you don't think you're a person of faith. Maybe you're not sure. Am I a person of faith? Do I have beliefs? I want to make the case today, if that's you, that everyone actually is a person of faith. I'll even go this far. Every single individual on planet Earth is a person of faith. Just what's their faith in? And that even the absence of beliefs in God or Jesus or an afterlife, even in the absence of belief, is still belief. The Gospel of Luke, remember, Luke is a doctor, a physician, writing to Theophilus, a Gentile man, uh, kind of a Gentile audience book. So it's not surprising that Luke, as a doctor, would use the same kind of Greek word for salvation and healing or healer. Kind of the same word covers both of those, healing and salvation, or salvation and saving and wholeness. How do those come to us? Because those are words that would bring a, a positive feeling to anyone, wholeness healing, salvation. They come through faith. They come through faith. Faith is the connector. Faith is the conduit through which Christ enters a life and through which salvation and wholeness and healing comes. So this morning, we're going to look at two stories that you heard read. And in those two stories, we're going to look at the importance of faith in the life of follower of Jesus. And we're also going to examine the essence of faith. So how it works in the story of the centurion first. And then... Faith awakening truth that death can be overcome in the resurrection of the widow's son. So that's where we're headed this morning. So hopefully you've got your outline there. Have it open. For those of you who like to take notes and do fill-ins and write down references and things for growth group as you discuss throughout the week uh, and have your text open, we'll reference verses today. As we come to our first truth, and here it is. Everyone has faith in something, but true faith in Jesus is kind of disruptive, in fact, I would say really disruptive, and I'm going to try to make that case today. We come to a really incredible story first of a Gentile centurion and the faith Jesus sees in this centurion that he absolutely marvels at, the text says. He marvels at it. This centurion, just to recap the story again, has a servant who is deathly sick, and he must really care about this servant. And he sends out a delegation of Jewish leaders to invite Jesus to come and heal his servant, to come and heal him. 
Now, why do they go, this delegation? So remember, he's a Gentile, the centurion. He sends these Jewish delegates to go find Jesus. Now, why do they go? They're Jews. He's a Gentile. Well, first of all, there's just really a great, a great cooperation here between different races, which is instructive for us, that we're better when we work together because they go and help him. But they do go help him because he's helped them. Did you catch that in the story? Maybe he's a God-fearer. Maybe he's a, a convert to Judaism. We're not quite sure. Um, or he admires their God. But we do know he built their synagogue, they said. We do know that. So he has truly helped them. Probably he was their patron. He probably financially backed the building of a synagogue, probably with his own money. Maybe he oversaw the construction crew. We're not quite sure. But a centurion would have been somewhat wealthy for that day, would have had finances for that day and culture as he was in charge of overseeing many soldiers, would have been paid by Rome. And so this Jewish delegation from this Gentile man goes to find Jesus. Now, they don't go because they believe in Jesus. They go because they believe in the centurion. Look at verse 4 of chapter 7. And when they came to Jesus, that's the Jewish delegates for the Gentile, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, he is worthy. He is worthy to have you do this miracle, this healing for him. Just come and do it, basically they're saying. He is worthy to have you do this, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. Now, the centurion believes in Jesus on some, some level already. He has to. Probably not saving faith quite yet, but some kind of faith, at least that Jesus can heal, right? He's sending people there for that. There's a big difference between the two here. The Jews believe and say, well, he, he deserves the healing." He deserves this. He's a good, virtuous man. That's what they're saying. But in verse 6, the centurion knows he doesn't deserve it. Look at verse 6 with me. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, so a second group of delegation, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy. I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. So the Jewish leaders say he is worthy, and the centurion says, I'm not worthy. You see, the Jewish leaders don't believe at this point yet that Jesus is God, but they do believe in something. They believe in the goodness of this centurion, and even the debt he was owed for his goodness by God. See, he, he deserves this. He's so good. You got to do this for him, Jesus. You see, you can never actually just not believe in anything. Even these Jews here who didn't believe in Jesus believed in the goodness of this centurion and based their actions even upon it. Everyone has faith in something. In fact, to be a human with a beating heart, that'd be all of you, right? I think, I hope, right? <laughs> yes, yeah. To be a human with a beating heart means you are a faith-filled person. And actually, I would say faith on one level is natural. Now, it's supernatural on another level we're going to talk about, but on one level, it's, it's natural to have faith in, uh, uh, in something, on some level of conviction or trust or active framework that you live your life within and guides your decisions. Everyone has that. You get out of bed because you have faith that the floor is going to hold you when you step on it, right? Some kind of faith. 
You do an act of kindness because you might have faith that it's better to do an act of kindness than an act of of cruelty. See, everybody's got faith in something. You go to work because you believe it's better to have a paycheck than not. You got faith in that. You need a paycheck. Or maybe you give in to your desires because you believe you have faith that it's better to feed your desire than exercise self-control. So we all function and live out of faith beliefs. Even those, I would say, who deny the existence of God or the exclusive claims of Christianity, maybe that's you today, you have beliefs too. Or if you're watching online, you have beliefs too. You can't escape faith in something. The term secularism has become really popular today. Talk about secularizing Europe and secularizing America. And it is increasing. It's an increasing view of the world which is defined negatively as someone's separation from religious types of beliefs. But we got to be clear. Even your secular grandson, maybe your secular daughter or neighbor, or maybe if it's you today, has beliefs. Secularism isn't just the absence of beliefs in our culture. It's just a different set of beliefs. We've got to be clear about that. And as Christians, we should. It's a great avenue and a road into evangelism. Everyone has beliefs, whether the belief of an absence of God or the belief in a God. Faith in some way comes natural. Faith in something, at least. I mean, look at both the Jews and the Gentiles in this story. Everyone believes in something. Even if you're 12 here today, or 15 or 16 here today, or in your 20s, everyone believes in something. So it's natural in a way. But it's also really disruptive. Faith is disruptive in two ways. As question three, you'll see on your growth group's uh, questions there asks us. So if you want to make some notes, here's where that question three comes into play. Disruptive in a couple of ways. Two ways how faith is disruptive. Now the centurion of our story doesn't call out for Jesus until a beloved member of his family is on death's doorstep. Did you catch that in there? Something incredibly disruptive has come into his life. And isn't that kind of our lived experience? When do you cry out to God most in your life? When the biggest, most painful disruptions enter your life. Think about one or two of those right now in your mind. When those disruptions have come into your life, you cry out for God. We send up for a priest on our deathbed, right? You know that tradition? Disruptive experience when those come into our life. Now, most of the time, I think we live our life with beliefs that are much less disruptive and and business and activities that we use to insulate ourselves from the harsh realities of life. Those are called distractions or habits or leisure or on the negative spectrum, addictions that we insulate ourselves with the most harsh realities and the biggest disruptions of life until something disrupts our life. Like the centurion, his beloved servant on his deathbed. We don't go there usually, that, those big disruptions. And understandably so, nobody wants to live in the harsh realities and the pain of life every day and every moment. We, of course not. In the Screwtape Letters, which is a book by C.S. Lewis where 
Um, it's letters from a, a higher up level demon to a lower level demon. He's giving him advice on how to take care of his, um, what does he call him, his patient, I think, which is the human that the demons are watching over. And in the screw tape letters, he writes to this junior devil how to keep his human patient distracted from faith in God, how to keep him distracted from the big questions of life that come many times with disruptions, don't they? Who am I? Why is this happening? Is God here? Here's what uh, the one demon said to the other. You know, don't, make, don't argue with him. Like, keep him distracted, he says. By the very act of arguing, you awake the patient. That's the human the demons are looking over. You awake the patient's reason, his thoughts. And once it's awake, who can foresee the result? Even if a particular train of thought can be twisted so as to end in our favor, you'll find that you've been strengthening in your patient the fatal habit of attending to universal issues. That's big questions of life. And withdrawing his attention from the stream of immediate sense and experiences. That's the distraction, habits, and addictions. Your business is to fix his attention on the stream. Teach him to call it real life. And don't let him ask what he means by real. So much of our life is lived just in that stream. Kind of just going along to get along. Or Neil Postman's great book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. That's a good title, right? Maybe we'd call it, probably an updated version would be like scrolling ourselves to death today, right? So much of our life we live in that stream. But remember, faith is in the assurance of things not seen. And so the demons here want to distract the patient so he doesn't think about the big questions of life, which many are in the realm of the unseen. Is there God? Did he make the world? How does he save us? What's my purpose? But that doesn't mean just because it's in the world of the unseen that it's irrational or illogical. If you do not have faith in Jesus but are curious about Jesus, could you dare ask to disrupt your life or ask Jesus to disrupt your life in such a way that you're compelled to look past the stream to the realities of life? Or how about if you do trust Jesus today? That's probably a lot of us in here. You trust Jesus today, but your faith has just felt a little dry or not quite sparked or awakened. It just feels a little, you feel a little off. Could you dare ask Jesus? It's a big ask. Because sometimes we get what we ask for. Could you dare ask Jesus, disrupt your life in a way with something that would wake you up even more to his grace and mercy and again just kind of rekindle your faith? That's a big ask, I know. But remember, our Lord is not come to break a reed. He's gentle. He will do it gently and lovingly and compassionately. But could you ask today in your growth groups this week, Lord, would you bring something that would just disrupt me a little bit? And of course, we're not asking for a big painful thing. But remember, I said he's gentle. You could even ask him, would you do it in a gentle fatherly way? Disrupt me from kind of living in the stream only. One pastor said, lightning can occasionally strike out of a blue sky, but not often. And he said, faith and illumination can come out of a blue sky, but usually what does it come out of? A cloudy gray one, doesn't it? The disruptions of life. Faith is disruptive that way, but here's a second way. That's one way. Here's a second one. This will look at the reason why in a moment. When a person comes to faith now, when a person comes to faith for the first time, and this is important as we're called to be on mission and evangelize the world and the lost if you're a believer. When a person comes to faith, it totally disrupts their life. 
It turns their life upside down. We tend to think of conversion experience today maybe like it was like yours. Maybe it was 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, how it was in days past. In days past, you could assume that maybe somebody you were trying to witness to or share Christ with, you could assume that they had some knowledge of the basic things about Christianity or Jesus or sin or God and heaven and salvation. You could kind of assume that. Be like playing connect the dots. Connect the dots on those things you used as a child, you know, or your parents would give you at the restaurant and say, keep yourself busy with this thing for a little while. You know, connect the dots. Now, 30 years ago, they might, and probably 30, 40, 50 years ago, they'd have a dot probably for sin. They'd probably have a dot in their mind and heart for God and heaven and hell. And what I mean by that dot is a basic understanding of kind of the Christian framework. And our job then as a Christian or as somebody who was trying to share our faith was to just help them connect the dots. That's kind of what it was like. It was disruptive in their life, but they already had a lot of connection points. So it was disruptive, and, but maybe not too disruptive. We have to really understand something. For most people that we come into contact with, and maybe that's you today, there's no more dots. There's no more dots to even really help them connect. And so coming, that's why we don't see as many instantaneous conversions anymore either, I think. We used to see a lot more of that quickness. And yeah, I want that because they're already ready for it. Coming today to faith today feels like a train wreck in life. Not usually actually a warm, fuzzy feeling. There's a great book written by Rosario Butterfield um, called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Con- uh, Convert. I almost said convict. She was not a convert. An English professor's journey into Christian faith. She was at one time this very respected English professor of literature at Syracuse University, elite, established, brilliant. She also struggled with same-sex attraction, had a, a partner. And she came to faith over time. But listen to how she describes coming to faith. This is more the experience of most people today. How do I tell you about my conversion to Christ without making it sound like an alien abduction or a train wreck? (laughs) The truth be told, it felt a little like both. The language normally used to describe the odd miracle simply does not work for me. I did not read, and she's pretty strong in her language, one of those tacky self-help books with a thin coating of Christian themes. I didn't examine my life against the tenets of the Bible the way one might hold up one car insurance policy against all others and cleanly and logically make a decision for Christ. While I did make choices along the path of this journey, they never felt logical, risk-free, or even sane. That's her experience. Now, it's one of many, but she's saying it's like a train wreck that didn't feel logical or risk-free or sane, even if it was. It is. She goes on later to say, conversion put me in a complicated and comprehensive chaos. I sometimes wonder when I hear Christians pray for the salvation of the lost, if they realize that this comprehensive chaos is the desired end of such prayers. That's a different type of experience of conversion to Christianity. Gone are the days when we could help people just connect dots. there's just not that Christian framework there. So let me just say this. If you've recently come to Christ, 
the last couple years, or you're exploring him today, the chaos you feel is a normal feeling. It's normal. Your life is getting turned upside down in some ways. Jesus tends to do that. You're in a great place if that's you, to just be here and figure out what the dots are before you even have to connect them. And as we think, what's so important about this now as I speak to believers here, as we think about our call to mission and reaching the lost, we have to realize that evangelism is going to have to look much more like getting to actually know a non-Christian and listen much longer before we're able to help connect any dots and let people just know first that you care. It's so disruptive now in the world. It's not connecting dots anymore. Our commitment to evangelism is going to have to look a lot different. I'm going to have to commit to that. I've been looking at my life lately thinking how few non-Christians I actually am around. I mean, that's convicting as a pastor. How am I going to reach the lost? How am I going to witness the lost if I'm not even in their spheres? We have to think about that. Rosario Butterfield came to faith. Do you know why? Because a loving pastor and his wife just befriended her. And man, they went on a long journey with her. Imagine disrupting her life. She taught um, LGBT classes, critical theory, uh, all this stuff that she was just entwined in. All of a sudden, she becomes a believer when all of a sudden, over time. I mean, think about who had to walk through that with her. It's going to take something a lot different. But there's a lot to hope in because the Spirit is still doing the same work. It just looks different. We're going to have to intentionally invest in relationships. No dots to connect anymore. Well, let's talk a little bit more why it's disruptive. We're talking about faith in something. It's disruptive. Let's talk about why. The essence of faith, here it is, is the object of your faith and the humble rest on the object. That's why it's so disruptive. We're going to unpack that. The object of your faith and the humble rest on the object. Saving faith is disruptive, as Rosario Butterfield experienced it, or maybe you or somebody you know, because it's entirely changing and transferring your faith from something, some object, something, to something else, another object. That's Christ. That's why it's so important for us to establish up top that everyone has faith in something. That's why it's disruptive, because everybody's faith is in something, and then to come to Christ, it has to be transferred off one object to a person, really, not another object, because it's transferred. Look at verse 7. He says there in chapter 7, he says, Therefore I did not presume to come to you, but just say the word. Just say the word, and my servant will be healed. He says, just say the word. That's some type of faith, isn't it? Just say the word, Jesus. Like I said, it may not be saving faith yet for the centurion, but he's at very least, he's either heard Jesus teach, or he's seen him heal somebody else or heard stories about it. Just say the word, Jesus. He's saying to Jesus through this delegates, I realize you have a lot of power. You can do it from where you are. You don't even have to come to my my house. And he gives an illustration in verse 8. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. Who is a centurion? The centurion was a critical piece of the Roman Empire, the backbone of the Roman Empire, a centurion. He would have overseen probably about 100 soldiers as a centurion. 100 soldiers, centurion. He would have reported to a general. 
And the general would have reported, if I can get higher, uh, to the emperor. To the emperor. So the centurion is saying kind of to Jesus, I get the authority thing, but I don't really have a power of my, my own. My power comes as a centurion from my line of authority to the emperor. It's the only reason centurion had power, because the general and the emperor were behind him. So he's saying, in some sense, to Jesus, you know, he doesn't really trust, he doesn't believe in saving faith yet, but on some level he's saying to Jesus, okay, I get the authority thing, Jesus. You may not have power for yourself, Jesus, but man, somehow it seems like you've got a direct link in line of authority, because I understand it. I've got the line of authority. You must have some line of authority, Jesus, to, to God, because you've got some power. We all know that. So as I said, this is not like trusting Jesus yet for dying on the cross for my sins and raising from the dead or, uh, or my victory type of faith. It's not that. He's more like the man in the Gospel of Mark. Do you remember him? Who also wanted a family member healed. And he said to Jesus, yeah, I believe Jesus, but help my, what did he say, do you know? Unbelief. I believe, but help my unbelief. Yes, I believe. It's like the song we sing. And we're going to sing at the end today. In all my sorrows, Jesus is better. Make my heart believe. I believe, yet help my unbelief. In every victory, Jesus is better. Make my heart believe. I believe, Jesus. I have faith. Hey, just say the word and it'll be done. But I also have doubts at times. But here's the incredible truth. Here's the truth we have to hear. It is not even the strength or the quality, or the perfection of your faith that saves you. It is the object of your faith. That's what matters. And and how much faith did it take here? How much faith did it take for Jesus to respond? Because he does. He heals the, the servant. Just enough for the centurion to cry out to Jesus. That's all it took. Talk about a mustard seed of faith. It's the object of your faith, Jesus Christ. The song goes on, there's no other, so sure and steady. My hope is held in your hand when castles crumble and breath is fleeting. Upon this rock I will stand. Upon this rock I will stand. See, but faith, it's not just emotions. It's not less than that. I want to be careful. It's not less than that, believing faith. And faith kind of has been in some ways reduced in our world to just sort of emotions, uh, an emotional virtue in the world. Just, just believe in something, right? It doesn't matter what it is. Just believe in something. That's all that matters. Or, you know what, even have faith in faith if you want. Or have faith in yourself if you want. Just make sure you believe in something. I heard a little story, though, from a pastor once. It was a great little example. He talked about two climbers climbing up a mountain. And they're climbing together, and they kind of fall together at this one point as a little ledge gives way. And they fell down to a ledge, a tiny area below them. And as they looked at it, there was two ways off this little, little ledge they'd fallen on that they could go on. There was one this way and, and one the other. And the first climber, he was just so sure. He was so certain and almost in, in, a, in a confident, cocky way. That's the way. I'm going that way. I know it. I'm just going that way. I totally believe it's going to be fine. I'm going to go that way. And the other one was like, well... I think that one looks right, but I'm really scared to death. I think it looks right, but I'm not sure. That first climber goes, no, 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 it's this one. And he steps out and he gets on that little edge. It gives way, what? And he falls. He absolutely falls. 
the second climber who was like, oh, I think this is it. I'm scared. I don't know. I'm going to step out on it. He steps out. He's fine. And it holds him, the rock, and he's saved. Who was saved? The man who believed in all of his heart and was so assured and, 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 and just so confident of it? No, the man who believed in the right rock was saved. That man was saved. It's not the strength of your faith even necessarily or the perfection of it, but it's the object of your faith. Upon this rock I will stand. That's why in moments of doubt and weary and tiredness and disruptions, even if you've got a mustard seed, you hold onto the rock of your faith. It wasn't the assurance he had. It was the right rock. <laughs> it matters. I guess is the object matters. We had a funeral here yesterday. And after the message, I met a man in the gathering place. And he said to me, he just said, I, I feel so weak in my faith sometimes. He said, I thought I was so strong. But I've lost like three loved ones in the last month or two. And I just feel really weak in my faith. And he said, but then you talked, I talked about something similar yesterday. He said, you talked about the object of our faith. He says, you were speaking right to me yesterday. I wasn't, but he, you know, the Lord was. The object of his faith. And when he heard that, I said to him, I said the same thing. It's okay. The perfection of your faith isn't what saves you. Are you trusting Jesus? Well, yes. The object of your faith matters. Well, here's what's so incredible about the centurion's faith. Let's take a look at it. Here's what's so incredible. It's not only resting on the right object, but it's a humble rest on the rock, Jesus. It's humble, and therefore it models for us a great deal about faith. Well, how do we know? Remember, the Jewish leaders come to Jesus and say, this man is virtuous. They believed in him. This man is virtuous. This man loves our nation. He's a good man. He is worthy of this healing. In other words, God, you come to the worthy. God comes to the worthy. He deserves it. Go save this man's servant. Now, if the centurion would have said to Jesus, you know what, I'm not worthy, which he did say, but if he said, I'm not worthy, so don't come, do you see, he would have been operating out of the same prideful heart. I'm not good enough. God only comes to the worthy. They said it. He's worthy. Come. But if he would have said, I'm not worthy, don't come, it's the same operating principle. He only comes to those who are good. He just would have been maybe falsely humble, the centurion. But that's not what he says, it does, is it? He says, I am not worthy, that's correct, but please still come. He says, I'm not worthy, please still come heal my servant. It's the same uh, idea uh, if somebody says, you know, how could God forgive someone like me? Uh, that would actually be the same operating principle that he really only comes to those who are a little better than I am, and so I'll be a little better, then God will come and forgive me. But that's not what the centurion says. He says, I'm not worthy, please still come. The centurion humbly rests on the rock. He steps on the rock with humility. I believe, help my unbelief, I think this is the way I'm going. He steps humbly on the rock. Augustine said that faith is not just the mere theoretical assent to certain truths, but also a fundamental commitment. I'm stepping out, acting on such truths that are not only believed to be true, he went on, but are also believed to be good to believe. He had to transfer his trust to centurion from what? We know because the, the Jews, they gave us the insight. He had to transfer, transfer from his own moral virtue. 
He's a good man. He loves our nation. He deserves his healing. He had to transfer his trust from his own moral virtue over to Jesus. I'm not worthy, but still please come. Do you hear that? Remember, his faith even said, Augustine said, they're good things to believe in, too. Good things to believe in, too. Something you would wish would be true if you're not a believer today. You hear it and you go, man, that's too good to be true. I wish it were true. Which leads to our final point. Yeah, we've got to transfer our trust. Yes, it's heading in a new direction. But you've got to have a, it's not less than emotions either. You've got to have a faith awakened in your heart, affections and, and thoughts and emotions. Here it is. Faith is awakened when we know that the compassionate touch of Jesus restores life. You see, faith can't be less than a feeling. It's more than that, as Augustine just said, I quoted. It's always accompanied by action. James says the same thing in his letter. But surely, too, faith is also awakened and warmed and stoked like a fire by a heart that is attracted to Jesus, too. He has to be attractive to you also on a heart level, on an emotional level. Is Jesus attractive to you? I think that's the point of the next story that we finish with. It's more than that, Augustine said. It's always accompanied by action. And the details of this story matter in how we interpret Jesus' actions. Look at verse 12 of the second story. As he drew near to the gate of the town, that's Jesus, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her in that moment. In one sentence, Luke brilliantly sets the stage in this second story. It's one of only three recorded resurrections performed by Jesus in the Gospels. Lazarus, um, Jairus' daughter, and here, the third one, this young man in a casket in a funeral uh, procession. And in these little details, we get so much background on the story. Why a great crowd? He says it's a great crowd. Because this was a situation of great grief. It was the only son of a widow, which means she'd already buried her husband, and now she's burying her only son. Which means by that time in that, in that culture, she had just become one of the most socially and financially insecure people in all their town. She was now an outsider. And here, she doesn't even get the opportunity to express faith. Do you see that? Jesus just comes to her. He sees the situation. He knows it must be a great grief. And with compassion, this is where Jesus gets attractive. With compassion, he comes to this widow who's already buried her husband, now bearing her only son, no financial stability, security anymore. And he comes to her and he says, don't weep. Don't weep. Now, if he wasn't able to actually do something about that weeping, that'd be a really cruel thing to say, wouldn't it? That would be a really cruel thing to say. Don't weep. But he knows And he's moved in the gut by her grief. And he says, don't weep, because he knows he's about to give her back her greatest loss. He's about to give her back. Do you catch the imagery here? We we need to. A man is on his way to the grave. He's He's in his casket or on this funeral pallet. And Jesus, with a touch, halts death in this procession. And the finality here of death in this scene. He gets near death. He comes close to death, making himself even ceremoniously unclean. We don't like to get near death. 
We really don't. In fact, you know how many crime movies you see where they lay a blanket over the body? We hide our cemeteries off way out of the way. A lot of times our, um, we lose touch or we back away from our elderly when they get old or unhealthy. We don't like to be near death. And Jesus comes right to it and he rips the cover off of it. He comes right to it. And he rips the cover back off of this boy. Listen, look at verse 14 and 15 with me. Then he came up and he touched the beer. That's the, the pallet, the casket, or whatever he was laying on. And the bearers stood still. They're shocked. He said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Can you imagine that silent tension? He comes up and does the thing no good Jew would do. He touches it and stops the funeral procession, stops, stops the death march right in its tracks. And the panic and fear that ensues when this man sits up, still kind of wrapped in sheets. He halts the funeral procession. He halts death right in its tracks. That's what Jesus does. You see what we're getting at here? Jesus is not only the Lord over life, but over death and the dead too. And he restores life to those who know his touch. That's what it means to have faith. To know what the touch of Jesus truly does. And he doesn't walk away. He could have just done it and gone, you know, done it, dropped the mic and walked away from the situation. And everybody still would have been happy. No, he comes and he looks in the eyes of the mother. Because he's always about connecting and relationship. And he looks in the eyes of the mother. And Luke records, he gives back her dead son. He presents him to her. Isn't that attractive? Isn't that the kind of Lord you want to follow and the kind of Jesus you want to be around? That'll awaken some faith in you. Someone who's willing to get near death. He gave him back to her. And really, Jesus gives back life to us too because he died and was resurrected. He couldn't do it except for that resurrection of his own. And in compassion, he offers us the same thing. Spiritual life today is available for you, for, for me. As the Spirit first gives us a rebirth, new faith. And even that faith is a gift from the Spirit. Did you know that? You can thank God even for your belief. Ephesians 2, Paul writes, But God being rich in mercy, that's the most important but in all the Bible right there. Ephesians 2, 4, you should circle that but in your Bible. Really highlight it. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. There's a touch, right? By grace you've been saved and raised up. There's a touch, death to life, with him. And he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through what? Let me hear you say it. One more time. Faith. faith. For grace, by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. This is not even your own doing. Your faith, Paul is saying, is even a gift of God. Yeah. Oh yes, you exercise your will. Oh yes, you express a real personal trust and faith in Jesus. But Paul is saying, even that faith is a gift. You were dead on a pallet being carried to your grave and Jesus came up and put his hand on the bier. That's salvation. 
That's something that's attractive, isn't it? That's something that should warm and kindle and awaken faith today. Everyone believes in something, but it's the object of our faith that matters. The humble resting faith on that object like the centurion, and let your faith be awakened and warmed today by a compassionate Jesus who stopped your death march with its touch. There's no other no so sure and steady. My hope is held in your hand when castles crumble and breath is fleeting. Upon this rock I will stand. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, let be the, be the rock of our faith when it's weak, when it's waning, or, and, and may it wet wax upon you. We rest in the object of our faith. So Lord, would you save us? Would you give us that hope today and that comfort in your compassion and um, strengthen us today, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. We get